Welcome back to Fertility Now. I'm excited to have Dr. Dan Nayot on today's episode. Dr. Nayot is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist from Canada. He completed a Royal College Fellowship in Reproductive Endocrinology and and Infertility at McGill University. He also holds a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the University of Toronto and a Master of Science in Clinical Epidemiology from Harvard University. Hey, Dan, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be talking to you, Spencer. You, you have uh, unmatched energy, and I love the way you think, so this is going to be fun. I'm so happy to have you on. Um, I'm in Connecticut, and tell everyone where you're talking from. I'm talking from Toronto, home of the Toronto Raptors. I know, and by the way, I know you're a Raptors fan. <laughs> so are, do you, is your favorite sport basketball, or what is your sport that you follow out there? Uh, my favorite sport is basketball. I have a, a bucket list of being able to dunk a basketball. I hired a personal trainer, and I've had zero gains in the last two years. But I have not lost my enthusiasm to making that work. So you're getting close. I know there was a there's some good basketball here. We have the Celtics. We're playing the Heat. I don't know if that happened. It was a game seven. So you know, just for our audience, you know, Illum joined the Fertility Partners this year. And you are the medical director of the Fertility Partners, which is completely awesome. So I'm really happy to be part of you. Um, And, you know, just so our audience knows, your interests are the obvious. You and I both wanted to do this podcast really to talk about kind of technology and how we can help our patients better. But I want to just lead in and say, obviously, you, you know, care about excellent patient care outcomes and advancing the field of reproduction for success. Artificial intelligence is something on your plate. And I know you and I both think about successful outcomes of embryo transfer. And when you and I have talked, we both went into this field for similar reasons because of the cool technology and all the new things that were coming down the road. Tell us, tell me about how you got into this field. You were kind of commenting to me. Yeah. I mean, t- to me, when I was trying to figure out the field of choice, it, it, it sort of makes sense. I, I personally, I did a background in mathematics. I did my master's in political epidemiology. So very numbers, logic. I probably should have been a, a coder or an accountant, but um, right. I, be- I became a physician. But I, I personally love the objective stuff. I like the stuff, you know, that's what REI is being about. You you change this lever, the, this goes left. You change that lever, this goes right. Uh, so I really like the objective stuff. I wanted to pick a field that I thought the future is like endless potential. So to me, I always joke around that, you know, pneumonia has been being treated for, you know, hundreds of years, but the first IVF baby is less than 50 years old. And I wanted to be in a field that's rapidly changing. I wanted to be part of that innovation. For me, I always felt like I, I had this feeling I couldn't really innovate till I got to the end of the field. And, you know, as most trainees, I mean, you're always learning, but, you know, Really, the end of the field is the end of the fellowship, where you realize there isn't a correct answer, but there's multiple approaches and listening to other experts. And at some point, you get, the, you know, the amazingness is like you get your own opinion. You know, you you see the problems and you get to figure out your own solutions. Right. I similar, similar feeling to you when I and, and I was talking to you about this when I was a resident in obstetrician in OBGYN residency, I saw a day three embryo being biopsied. At the, at the cleavage stage when one blastomere was removed to find out if that embryo was 46 chromosomes, you know, and um, to see if that cell was 46 chromosomes. And when I saw that, 
I realized how cool the future of our field was going to be. And you and I, when we've talked personally, one of the things that I know you and I love is how interesting our field is and and how it's moving forward with technology. And that's where your math, like you said, is and and epidemiology is so hot because you know we're we're biopsying embryos, we're doing all these cool things now. Yeah, you know, and so we both love technology, and we. I just Dan and I wanted to make a couple comments. We'll kind of go back and forth a little. Think about where we are with IVF. You know, with IVF, but before putting back embryos in our patients, we're genetically testing them. It's incredible trying to pick the most competent one. You're doing a lot of embryo testing with your patients. Yeah, I would say here in Toronto, I'm about 50%. A lot of it, sometimes it's guided by the patient where they come in, you know, this is what they want to do and that's what they've read. Sometimes it's me recommending it, but I'd, I'd say it's a pretty high uptake. What, what about you? I th- I was going to say the exact number. I think we're around 50%. And um, like you said, our patients sometimes want to do it. Um, sometimes they want to do gender selection, but that's actually really rare. It's actually really rare. That's very rare. Less less than one or two percent of our patients. They kind of want to say, you know, I, I want to know if the embryo is forty six chromosomes or not. And I direct our patients a lot, depending upon their age, well, and trying to coach them to do it. When now we, I have to tell you now. I know where to send them because we can't do gender selection in Canada. You can't. We cannot. So, yeah. So that's not, you know, and, and I'm going to say this, and Dan knows exactly what I'm saying. That's not why I'm there to do that, but it comes up rarely, rarely. Yeah. Endometrial testing and when to put that embryo back into the uterus is another cool thing. So, you know, I tell our patients, listen, we're, we're we biopsy this embryo, we've done a saline sonogram, we know your cavity's clean, and then you know when's the best time to put the embryo back into the uterus. And you've been playing around with some different information on you know, the lining and how the lining looks and how it looks for a better outcome for pregnancy. Tell me about a little bit about that. Yeah. So the studies, you know, the thought started many years ago, you know, when you, when you train and you learn and you, you see the different protocols, one thing is common, which is the endometrial thickness. The endometrial thickness is a single variable on ultrasound and it's consistently had some correlation. We probably, you know, it's not so stepwise, but probably too thin isn't great, and probably too thick means there's something going on too. Um, but everybody is pretty consistent that the lining thickness um, is important. Now, imagine you didn't have an ability to measure endometrial thickness, so you would just start some form of hormone and then, you know, put it in blindly. So, I, th- I think a single variable is better than no variable. Right. Uh, and then we went a little bit deeper and some, I know you, you're, me and you are sort of on the same page. We think the pattern of the lining is important too. Uh, you know, we know in the follicular phase or the estrogen, you know, dominant phase, we look for this trilaminar pattern. I think that's really important. But then w- one interesting point is, you know, once your lining is thick enough and you like the way the pattern looks and you say all systems go, you know, five or six or seven, depending on your clinic and your protocol, you're putting that embryo in. And to me, I think there's got to be more information between the decision to go for it and the transfer date. Right. So the, the thought process is like, let's look in between that decision to go for it and transfer. Because if you find something, maybe that's a, I, I, I look at it as a safety check, like one more look. Now, 
the the thought processes like i don't know what we we started as like what should we look for i mean to me when i think of project when i think of maybe oversimplified but when i think of estrogen i think of lining thickening when i think of progesterone i think of lining thinning and you you see that with birth control pills where you have constant progesterone and your lining gets thin or with an iud or provera but Essentially, every time there's progesterone, it sort of uh, luteinizes and thins the lining. So my, the thesis was, okay, well, lining thickens and progesterone uh, maybe thins, and maybe there's sort of uh, uh, something we can see in terms of the thickness. Okay. And so th- that was the study. Now, we've learned a lot since that original study was published two years ago. But the original thought was, let's look at everybody's lining before we said, let's go for it. So the thickness before starting progesterone and let's go back to their chart and look at their ultrasound on the day of transfer and let's compare the thickness. And I, my hypothesis was the more, the thinner the lining became, which we coined compaction. I think it sounds cool. Uh, Probably that gives us a little bit of indication that the progesterone was working at the tissue level. Right. Okay. That was the thought process. And we looked at it, in all comers and in euploids, and we sort of saw a pretty cool stepwise approach. Then we thought we solved, you know, there was a eureka moment where we thought we solved all of embryo transfers. And then I think, in my opinion, we got humbled pretty quickly and realized there was probably a lot more to it. So some limitations. One, the study was before deciding to start progesterone and day of transfer. But we know clinically that's not so useful to the patient in front of me because I've already thawed your embryo. If I don't like what I saw, it's too late. I've thawed your embryo. So it would be a lot more helpful if we did this test one or two days before. Correct. And so we took what we found, but we applied it clinically to one or two days before. So does it still hold up if we're now talking one or two days before? That's right. Right. The, The second part is... Usually when you do uh, your lining check, these are transvaginal ultrasounds. And when you're doing your transfers, these are abdominal ultrasounds. And does that mean we're really comparing apples to oranges? And when I say we were humbled is because since then there's been a paper. So the one thing I love about our field and research. It's moving quickly. Yeah, it's moving quickly. And the real main point of research is not to say we've solved the problem, but like, hey, has anyone thought of this? And then we don't have time to do all those studies. And then you saw a group who looked at it and said, you know what, we tried it, but with transvaginal ultrasound to transvaginal ultrasound, we didn't see a difference. Or another group who thought they thought they saw the reverse findings. So the truth is, it's still being explored, but I'm quite confident that there's got to be an extra variable other than thickness that should get like a second time point that should give us more information. Right. It seems, you know, it's interesting. I was obviously I've looked at your original paper and I was thinking, you know, at the time of transfer, a lot of times that lining's thinner and it's compact, but I never really thought correlationally what we would do with it. So it's interesting, like you commented, if you did your estrogen and then you did your progesterone, you had someone come in a day earlier, are you going to be able to get information about their lining? And will that translate into going ahead and doing a transfer because you like what you see or maybe canceling the transfer? And kind of like you said, it's, it's still under investigation, but those are the kind of studies that are really cool to me because they're so reality-based. 
Yeah, and, and the, the cool part is it sparks an idea somewhere else, and then you see it circle back and go, oh, that, that, that makes much more sense than my original idea. So, you know, if you sort of uh, call me every six months, there's like a new thing I'm obsessed with. Um, so back then we were doing compaction. We were wondering if this was all related to maybe the ratio of progesterone to estrogen. Should we be, you know, if we're not seeing compaction, if we think it's a predictive variable, should we drop our estrogen? Is this the, is this the, are these the women we need like dual progesterone or higher progesterone? Right. Are these the patients we need an extra day of progesterone and things like that? It's so, this is such, you know, what's amazing is now we have these embryos that in quotes, let's say in some of our patients, they're biopsied and now we're really honing in on that transfer. Really cool stuff. Next thing we know, we have lab techniques, which are just incredible. We have doctors doing amazing embryos, transfers. But what's really cool also is you're working on a project with artificial intelligence, which is so, so cool. And obviously, I've looked at all of your work. Um, Absolutely love it. Um, Egg freezing is very, very important. I've seen this week, last couple weeks, a lot of patients who want to egg freeze even more than ever. Are you seeing that too in your practice? Oh yeah, for sure. It's just uh, getting more and more. And I, I, and I, I think the trend is uh, going to continue for sure. I think it's going to continue. And you know, bottom line is we have patients who are not ready to family build and they want to freeze their eggs and they want to do it for electively to say, you know what? I'm not ready to family build now. I'd like to freeze some eggs. So I have when I'm younger and then use them down the road, or maybe they don't need them. And we also have our patients who, you know, are freezing eggs for chemotherapy before cancers. So egg freezing is really cool. And Dan, I was commenting, and I want to, uh, in general, that we've on this podcast have talked a lot about egg freezing. So I'm going to kind of go through and throw some things out there and let you comment. So in general, you know, egg freezing is the first part of IVF. And so to kind of do a real quick recap before we talk about Dan's um, Violet project, you know, for me, I love ovarian reserve testing. The obvious, you know, how am I going to do, Doc, your age, your follicle count, your AMH? Um, and that will give me an idea of how you're going to do with IVF and how many eggs you're going to get. Because I really want a ton of eggs because we all know not every egg is going to make an embryo. You feel the same way in your patients? Absolutely. So you do your ovarian reserve testing. You're seeing your patients. We're seeing them stimulate 10 to 14 days, kind of the basics. Same for you. Um, and then a quick egg retrieval, 10 to 15 minutes. And guess what? They're done. And now you have these beautiful eggs for down the road if you need them when you're younger. Um, and if you need them, you need them. If you don't, you don't. Um, that retrieval takes 10 to 15 minutes. And down our patients are home and they're vitrified. Now this is where your project comes in. I'm going to make one comment. I'm going to let you jump in there. So we have these eggs frozen, but patients always wonder, and I think this is the, this project is so, it's so interesting and so important. So we froze your eggs when you're 30 and they look good to the naked eye or under a microscope, but how are they going to work in five years when, when, when you want to use them? And that's really important because a lot of people, Dan, they're freezing the eggs, these eggs, and they're really banking on that they're going to work well in the future. And if they may find out down the road that they don't work well, maybe they want to know something about them today when they freeze them. Tell, bring us through your idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank, that's a perfect setup. So uh, let me actually zoom out. I think one of the number one myths in the world of fertility is that we 
as fertility doctors, have a way to assess egg quality. All the time I see patients misunderstanding and sometimes fertility doctors where they equate your ovarian reserve with egg quality. If a low reserve meant you have low egg, low egg quality, then we would be telling our PCOS patients, your eggs are fantastic. You've had such a high reserve. But everybody who, you know, is reading the literature knows that they're essentially independent. I can't say 100% independent, but essentially quantity and quality are not the same thing. We as physicians can measure a quantity, but what I tell my patients, unlike sperm, sperm comes out of your body, we have a much better look at it. But for my patients pre-treatment, I have no way to know other than either your history, you're getting pregnant every month, then great, you've got great eggs, or your age. Okay. The craziest part is even once we get our eggs, there's no egg scoring system. To me, that's what sparked the whole thing. When I was learning about everything, you know, we have a sperm analysis and WHO getting updated every few years. We have specialized sperm tests. Of course, it's not perfect, but it's some information like DNA fragmentation. Embryos are different grading system. You know, let's just talk about embryo grading. Really, it's just a language. If I say 4AA, you can draw that for me so we can talk about the same thing. Luckily, it also correlates with success rates, right? Like if a 4AA and a 2CC had the same success rates, we would we wouldn't care about these grading system. We would just say you have an embryo, right? Right. And I thought it was just crazy that there was no egg scoring system. Like, how could that be? And patients all the time sort of say to me, tell me about my eggs, right? Especially, we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on the egg freezers, but they say to me, all right, well, tell me about my eggs. And I say, I, I don't have any feedback about your eggs. I just know about what we call nuclear maturity, where immature eggs we think have almost no potential. And we actually, at my lab, discard them. And I think right. most labs. And mature eggs have potential. But I have no idea about your specific eggs. And so the the, the feedback we give patients now who are egg freezing is very general. Yeah. Essentially, your age suggest how efficient an egg is whether it's five percent per egg or eight percent per egg or twelve percent per egg and then the number of eggs is pretty individual okay and it's good to have general feedback because otherwise we would have no feedback and we said you froze your eggs good luck to you you know they need to i think they need to understand if they're in the 10 percent range this is a bit of a hail mary here or in the 90 percent but of course, there is no guarantee, and it's not fertility insurance, as people say. It's sort of hedging your bet. Right. But that I'm just setting us up. So the whole project was because I couldn't believe there wasn't an egg scoring system. Okay. I am not an embryologist, but I'm a very irritating REI who goes into the lab all the time and trying to understand. And and I I learned a lot by reading and talking to embryologists. And when you when you I say there's no egg scoring system, but if you ask an embryologist, they could talk to you for 15 minutes about each egg, okay? They just don't have a way to communicate that back to me who has no way to communicate it back to the patient. But when you look at the studies, you know, there are no dysmorphic, a dysmorphism is an egg that we see something inside of it, whether, you know, vacuoles or fragmented polar bodies. Essentially, we are assuming that the lack of dysmorphism equals good egg. Correct. And, and it's, it's very logical. I think probably the most famous example out there in 2022 is smooth endoplasmic reticulum, SER. 
So a while ago, there were papers to suggest if you see an SER in the egg, not only are they unlikely to get pregnant, but if they do, it's really bad. They're going to have bad obstetrical and neonatal outcomes and birth defects and whatnot. And so we don't want that for a patient. We would discard those eggs. Correct. Then there would be studies that suggest, actually, that's over, you know, that's a scare tactic. And actually, that's not true. And so some, there used to be labs that threw away those eggs. And who knows what would have happened to them, Mm -hmm. right? And um, there are labs who don't care or don't comment on it. And probably most labs are somewhere in the middle where they'll comment on it. And they'll deselect it as maybe their last choice among the cohort. But it's a good example of a very uh, a dysmorphism that we don't really know if it's a good or bad, and we just assume it's a bad thing. Um, okay, I'm going to go back before I jump into the AI, but please stop me, Spencer, because I can go on and on. Now, in egg freezing, one thing that I have learned in the experience, talking to dozens of physicians and clinics, is if you speak to an egg freezer after she's done the retrieval, let's say six months or two years, a lot of them, most of them will remember the clinic they were at. That's pretty easy to remember. Very few remember exactly when. Almost none remember the number of eggs and almost none know the suggested or estimated chance of success. Even if you, Spencer, sat with them and said, you're 32, you've got 11 eggs, I think statistically we're in the 45% range. Nobody has that sort of information stored away unless they wrote it on a notepad and put it in a safe. Right. I actually believe that a lot of egg freezers don't follow up with their physician because what's there to talk about? The the deed is done and I'm not going to do it again. And so I don't know. Do you, do you, for example, routinely? So it's, it's interesting you say that. Today I called two patients who went to retrieval yesterday the eggs were stripped down and frozen, and I gave them the number of eggs that they had. And it's interesting. Um, it was we 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 talked about the number they had, and that was kind of it. Like you're just like you're saying, we didn't get deep into the morphology of the eggs, what they looked like. And I know in Violet, you're going to give your patients information on their eggs. We didn't, so it was like kind of it's like an abrupt stop, and it's like I say, hey, listen, you know where I am we'll work together in the future. We'll go from there. But it's a little bit, I wish they had more information. Yeah. I, I would actually love to do a study where six months after the retrieval, they go to Dr. Richland and say, okay, here's your patient. You did it six months ago. What do you think her chance of success is? And you'd come up with your medically sound uh, estimate, give or take. And then you ask your patients and I bet you it's wildly off, even right. though you told her, the same thing because there's no document you know usually the only documentation people have is like a a visa bill right right and so what we designed we did two things ai to give us insight about the eggs but also an egg freezing report for the patient who went through egg freezing so let me just talk about report and then we'll dive into the meat which is the ai but the report sort of puts everything the doctor should say into the report this is the day you had it. This is the number of eggs. And the beautiful part is you get the pictures of your eggs. So transparency is critical in our field. Here are 11 independent eggs, just like we told you. Okay, right. Here are pictures of it. And here is a general assessment based on your age and eggs. So, so the standard of care is there. But the beauty of what we did is we added AI into the mix. What is AI? AI is artificial intelligence, specifically uh, vision-based So essentially, 
we call this narrow AI. Narrow AI means you have a specific problem and you're using AI to solve that problem. And so what we did is we took thousands of pictures of eggs. So these are, you know, uh, stripped down mature eggs. And we knew what happened to each one of these eggs. Did it fertilize? Did it become a blastocyst, white grade blastocyst and whatnot? And by correlating, you know, you have input and output and you create a neural network, obviously with smarter people than myself. And the machine tries to understand and predict what will happen. So this and is so what's so cool, Dan. This is just right where I want you because this is the amazing stuff. So like our audience, they, they had eggs stripped down, you, the, the visual evaluation of them looking at different features of the egg. You're going to correct me because obviously you did this. And then we're going to put sperm with them and see which of those eggs create blastocysts. And the technology and the, the artificial intelligence is going to be able to do this in the future for people. Is that what you're what you're thinking? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the ultimate goal is to be able to predict from egg to live birth. There are many, many, many variables past blastocysts, like the way we prepare the lining and who does the transfer and stuff like that. We started with egg to blastocyst because a blastocyst is a prerequisite to success. It doesn't mean you're going to succeed, but it's a prerequisite and it's nice and controlled. So it becomes a really beautiful problem to solve before the physicians get involved or the uterus gets involved. Um, so, we created an AI machine to try to predict the chance that an egg becomes a blastocyst. And in my opinion, that is an egg scoring system. An egg scoring system, the higher the score, the higher the reproductive potential of the egg, kind of like embryo grading. So the higher your embryo grade, the more success you should have. Otherwise, what's really the point of this embryo grade? Right. And so that, that's what we did. So, you know, it is a continuously improving technology, but we are validating in many ways. One of the ways we're doing it is we, you know, we have sets of eggs, let's say 300 eggs, and we give it to trained embryologists and we say, take a look at these eggs. Do you think it will fertilize? Yes or no? Based on your 20 years of experience, do you think it will become a blastocyst? Yes or no? And consistently, embryologist after embryologist, country after country, the ability to predict whether an egg becomes a blastocyst is essentially a flip of a coin, maybe 52%, which is not that they're not experienced or brilliant at their job. It's just that they have human eyes. And this is the exact reason why there was no egg scoring system. If embryologists would be able to tell which egg would be more likely, then we would have some form of, whether it's red light, orange light, green light, I'm not talking about how sophisticated, but they don't have them. So we know that embryologists and the human eye don't have the potential to go to predict egg to blast, which makes sense. That's why we don't have an egg scoring system. And now we're building uh, machine learning, vision analysis to try to predict that. So we've already been able to hit about 20% above embryologists, but of course our goals are higher and higher than that. To get more accurate, we need a few things. We obviously, the more data we get, the better. Um, and the type of data we get is going to get better. And the AI, you know, if you think fertility is rapidly evolving, the world of AI and open source and software really is moving. just crazy, just crazy. Uh, so I feel very strongly that if me and you go to sleep and we wake up in five years, this will be part of routine care. 
right? So that the concept of machine learning and the ability of the optical to be able to predict or tell us if that's a good egg without the computer being programmed by a human person. Is that correct? It has its own ability to improve and figure out on its own. Is this true, what I'm saying? Yeah, you're saying true. I, I would level. say in the world of fertility now, in our field, if we're talking about the cross-intersection between fertility and AI, I would say the hot topics people are working on and talking about, one is embryo selection. Yeah. The idea is, hey, you know, your trained embryologist knows what they're doing, whether it's how the embryo is developing or what it looks like at the end or what not, but maybe a machine could do even a little bit better. So that's a great clinical question. The other one that people seem very excited about is uh, what, what, what we're calling like clinical support decision tools, like when to trigger or which protocol and, and things like that. Um, I, I think though the key is like, what are you using the AI for? For right. example, some people use AI as a safety net. Hey, Spencer, are you sure you want to trigger this patient? She's only on the fifth day of stimulation. You've never done that in the last two years. Red flag, red flag. And you say, right. oh, whoa, whoa, I thought she was on the 12th day. So is it like a, a safety check? Right. Is it to try to do something better? Like, uh, hey, we can choose an embryo better than your embryologist. Sometimes we use it to scale stuff to say, look, Spencer is the best there is, but there's only one Spencer and there's a thousand people waiting to see Spencer. But maybe if we train physician assistants or OBGYNs, they could do, then Spencer can manage a thousand patients at the same time because he just has to look at the unusual ones and stuff like that. So it really depends what you're trying to apply it to. It's interesting. You know, question for you on this, on, on the egg, egg issue, um, if a patient gets a report back from Violet that is not really encouraging, okay, so you have 12 eggs and, and it's not an encouraging report, and we don't think they're going to make, in quotes, a lot of blastocysts. You know, I was thinking to myself, and I'm going to throw this at you and you jump in, like, what what is their options? Are they going to do another cycle and to get more eggs so they have more to bank to potentially get some more blastocysts? Um, are they going to challenge their eggs with sperm and create embryos and see kind of how their eggs perform today? What? How do you see it moving forward? Yeah, I, I, I think you already came up with some good options. What I'm trying to do is be very careful and not not let the report become the doctor. Right. And so we sort of say it's a counseling tool. Right. You and your physician can go over it and you might say, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it depends. You might say it is what it is. Let's see what happens. You know, no, no tool is perfect anyways, and let's hope for the best or the reverse. You know, you might have fantastic eggs and you're not going to add great embryo uh, sperm to it later on. And, but as a general rule, your options are hope for the best, you know, try to overcome it by having more eggs. So just do generating more cycles. And again, right. me, me and you as physicians who do this routinely to us, it's like, what's the downside? It's just, it can only help you, it can't hurt you. Although in reality, it's it's emotional and it's expensive and there's a lot more to it than that. 
Or like you said, maybe this is a patient who should really consider using her eggs now, whether it's to make embryos or maybe get pregnant if they're open to it. Right. Really. So this this is a very cool area. And kind of like you said, AI is it's multifaceted and it's going to come into our field in many different ways as a tool. And we'll see how it all kind of flies. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So that was a really, that's some great, great stuff. You know, before we close in a couple of minutes, just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, an open-ended question, you know, what are you working on? What, what is on your mind these days as a reproductive endocrinologist who's busy, who's, you know, medical director of TFP, who sees their own patients, obviously, and what, what, what's piquing your interest these days besides the, all the things that are going on? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I've become obsessed with like scalable solutions. And so sometimes you, you know, I, I have the privilege of meeting incredible doctors and going to different clinics. And usually whenever I go to a clinic and speak to physicians, like there's one or two things that, that, that that's just brilliant. Like, why doesn't everybody do that? Like, uh, and so when you see this brilliant thing and you say, why doesn't everybody do that? Like, how can you scale it? Like, um, I'll give you an example. I mean, lots of controversial views me and you have. That's what makes it fun to talk to each other. But for example, you know, one of the hot topics for me is like a miscarriage. So extremely common, devastating. And we connect with the patients at their weakest. Okay. I'm not going to speak in general because everybody's different. But my sense so far in the field, or maybe not even the fertility, just general field of women experiencing miscarriage, I feel that very few women get offered the basics. The basics are pain control. Yes, they might be able to handle it, but why wouldn't we want to give them something for pain control, make it a little bit more tolerable? So most people who've had miscarriages said, like, no one offered me anything. They just sort of said, like, deal with it kind of thing. That, which I think is a missed opportunity. The second, you don't know how people experience their miscarriage. Some people are super stoic, and for some people, they never recover. But why not proactively offer some sort of counseling? I'm not a counselor, but this person is, and go talk to them. Did you know you could? Or even for me, and this part I still don't get, is why not offer, like, some people want more answers. So this is a bit of a more controversial topic, but, like, chromosome testing of the products of conception i'm a big advocate for it of course we can go deeper for who and when and stuff like that but i just think the offering like i see very few miscarriage patients getting offered those three basic things and i think like why and how do you scale such a simple three-step approach it's so interesting you say that i want to just crack on one of them i feel exactly the way you do about genetics. So a lot of our patients who've had losses, one loss or two losses, come to us and they didn't, when they had uh, their loss, let's say they had a DNC. That was their decision. They did a DNC. They did not do or were not offered chromosome testing, which is so important because if they did chromosome testing, we would assume the vast majority of time we'd find out that it was not genetically normal. And it just allows you and I to really counsel them. It wasn't immunologic. It wasn't blood clotting. It was aneuploidy. I agree. You know what, Dan's interesting? A lot of the obstetricians feel like 
until you have two, we're not going to do chromosomes. But I kind of talk to my residents who rotate through and say, listen, on their first loss, I'd like, I'd like to, uh, a karyotype to be done. Yeah. You know, the other thing you've said, just because just we're talking, is when people have losses, you're right, it is very complicated and people are very upset and um, it's a big deal. I did not think a lot about, like you said, pain medication enough during using mesoprostol. We, we talk about it, but I've got, I'm going to put that in my wheelhouse. See, I'm learning from you right now and just be more conscious. And we do have our reproductive counselors. We have two, as you know, in-house that we offer our patients, but I'll tell you, I don't offer it all the time. So just, we, like you said, we're always just improving from each other. Yeah. The, the, the other one that's recently been ruminating in my head is sort of what I will say, like the zoom out approach. So we as REIs who sometimes can be jaded, we see patients and clinical scenarios and variables. And we know statistically, this person might need three IVF cycles to succeed. So for us, straightforward, let's try this. And then and then we'll adjust and try that. But for the patient, a lot of them drop off after one cycle because it's many reasons. It's they lose hope. It's expensive. Why would the second time work if the first time didn't work? And I sort of say, geez, if they looked at it as a three-cycle approach, they'd be more likely to get to the finish line. And the more I think about it, it's kind of like IUIs. Like we don't say do one IUI and if it doesn't work, let's do a follow-up and talk about what we saw and how to adjust. People accept, let's try several IUIs because you got to give it a few chances. And if it doesn't work, let's review. Of course, IUI and IVF, big big jump in intervention, cost, emotions, uh, and go on. But just the whole idea of zooming out and seeing it as a multi-cycle approach instead of per embryo transfer, I think, I think it will help more people get to the finish line. In a way, when you, when you, you're exactly correct. So when our patients are doing IUI cycles, we all tell them, Hey, listen, you may get pregnant on cycle one, two, three, maybe four, hang in there. But for the IVF, if we talk about it, like you're suggesting, it kind of, it kind of sets the stage that it could take a couple and hang in there rather than putting too much pressure on just one cycle. Totally. Right. So that's interesting. And a lot of our patients, like you said, we know if they're, if they have some age issues, some ovarian reserve issues, and we're both sitting there saying, you know what, it, it could take a couple of cycles to get a couple embryos to talk about it up front and say, hey, listen, your zoom out approaches, hang in there, it may take you a couple, one, two, three, but, um, but hang with us and let's try to pull this thing off. So, so let me tell you an interesting thing that I've noticed in my practice in Ontario. So in Ontario, the government will cover one cycle of IVF. It does not include drugs or additional uh, tests like PGTA, but it does give people the opportunity. There is a bit of a wait time because it's limited per number of cycles per clinic. So depending on the clinic, it could be six months, a year or two years. Now, one thing I've noticed, which I find very fascinating, maybe we should write a paper on this, is the following. If a patient uh, waits for her funded IVF cycle and succeed, wonderful. If they do their funded IVF cycle and doesn't succeed, only X percent will try again. This time they have to pay for it. 
but the reverse. If a patient knows, look, my funding attempt is in six months, but I'd like to try one now. If they do a, what we call a private cycle and they succeed, that is money well spent and everybody's thrilled. But if they don't succeed, 100% of them will try again in the funded because it's free. Right. So it's two and- cycles, but the way they experience it is presented. So it's to me, it's just fascinating because the person who does the private cycle first has a way higher chance that at the end of this whole journey, they're, they're going to be successful. To yeah. Like, cause you said, cause they're doing, you know what? It sounds funny. You just, they're doing it. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't succeed and now you have to pay money to try again, you, you, you understand the rationale, but it's just, it's a psychological approach and how we prepare them. So to me, that, that, those are all fascinating. That's how, that's how me and you have a real role to play. Yeah. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I've, I've learned some different counseling things from you. These are, these are the great things about, about what we do. And, you know, like you kind of commented, there's no question that our patients who are doing these cycles, they're so brave. They spent so much time and energy. And I sometimes saying that's why our ladies are braver than the guys because they really hang in there and they're doing these shots and they're doing the retrievals and they're just so focused in there. But, you know, you're right. We got to keep them in it so they can win it. And I didn't mean to say that. That was a cliche. I didn't mean that, that was perfect. Let's, let's end it right there. That was perfect. Let's end it right there. So listen, we're going to end it right there. We could go on all night, all day long, everyone. I want to thank you, Dan, Dr. Nayot, for hanging out with us. It was an absolute pleasure. And I loved uh, talking technology with you. And I hope one day soon we're going to be utilizing your AI in our center. And... Um, I want to thank you very much for being on today. Pleasure. Spencer, thanks so much. Thanks for moving the field forward. Thank you very much. So everyone, as always, you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Spencer Richland. Feel free to email me with any questions at fertilitynow1 at gmail.com. Thank you very much.